Wars That Shaped the World uses dynamic, immersive audio to depict scenes of warfare. This episode contains racially insensitive language. Listener discretion is advised. At 4 a.m. on June 25, 1950, the land of the morning calm was shattered by the sound of mortars and artillery opening up across the 38th parallel that divides Korea into north and south. Soon, the growl of tank engines, Soviet-made T-34s, and squeal of their tracks confirmed what was coming. Invasion. Behind the tanks, 135,000 North Korean soldiers, well-prepared, equipped, and motivated by their Soviet trainers, swept across the border. The South Korean forces were everything the North weren't, poorly trained and equipped, and riddled with corruption. They were brushed aside. Four hours later, the US ambassador, hauled from his bed in the southern capital, Seoul, dictated a hasty message to Washington an all-out offensive against the Republic of Korea had begun. The communists were coming. As daylight broke, we heard this loud clanking noise off on the left. We understood now what was happening. Their tanks were coming. Eventually, I could see them dimly, moving through the morning mist. I counted them. When I got to nine, an order was given to pull back. Mortar rounds began falling nearby. The tanks continued to roll down the road toward us. We had no way of stopping them. I heard the new CO, Colonel Martin, tried to take on one of the tanks with a bazooka. The tank scored a direct hit on the colonel, and he was killed on the spot. Within days, the Americans were neck deep in the war. The Cold War had turned hot, and for the first time, US troops faced communist forces in pitched battle. This was a conflict that had been coming, and yet it still took the US and her Western allies by surprise. It's a conflict that's been relegated to the lower reaches of military history, yet it remains the most direct confrontation between East and West of the Cold War. And the most costly. The US lost twice as many men per year of the war as in Vietnam. And most chillingly, it was a war where the nuclear option came closer to being used than any other time in the Cold War. If US military commanders had had their way, nuclear weapons would have been unleashed not only on North Korea, but also China itself. It's a matter of the future of mankind. Remember this. If we do have another world war, it will be an atomic war. This is Wars That Shaped the World.
The Korean War taught the US just about every lesson they needed for Vietnam only a handful of years later, and they forgot just about every one. But it was much more than a warning from history. I don't think that as an army or a nation, we ever learn from our mistakes from history. We didn't learn from the Civil War. We didn't learn from World War I. The US Army has still not accepted the simple fact that its performance in Korea was lousy. The three years of the Korean War saw men from 16 countries fight for the United Nations, while three more were represented on the communist side. It cost millions of lives and saw the utter devastation of North and South Korea, from the very top at the Yula River to the very bottom where the peninsula jags into the Yellow Sea. Korea was a troubled country long before war began. Since the start of the 20th century, the Japanese had conducted a brutal occupation. Come the end of the Second World War, a small US force arrived in Seoul to take over from the Japanese. This section of the country is occupied by United States troops. The northern portion being... The Soviets, meanwhile, sent troops in from the north. In Washington, officials hurriedly searched out maps of the faraway peninsula spotted the 38th parallel was around halfway down and suggested that's where the Soviets stopped. At the stroke of a diplomat's ruler and pencil, Korea was divided. In the north, the Soviets created a communist state under Kim Il-sung grandfather of the current dictator. In the South, the Americans backed Sing Man Rhee, who'd fled the country after being imprisoned by the Japanese. Rhee was to prove no Democrat. In fact, he was to all intents and purposes a dictator too, but he was an intense anti-communist, and for the Americans, that's what mattered. In the US, fear of communism was rising rapidly. This was the dawn of the McCarthy era, of witch hunts and reds under the bed. Seven cases of individuals who would appear to be either card-carrying members or certainly loyal to the Communist Party, but who nevertheless are still helping to shape our foreign policy. Senator Joseph McCarthy's words fell on fertile ground. It was a fear and paranoia reflected across the high command of the US military. At first, in the late 1940s, President Harry Truman's administration wanted to see Korea united. But that seemed too complex and demanded too much of the US, whose focus remained on stopping Europe turning red. The US settled for seeing Rhee's staunchly anti-communist regime established in the South. Job seemingly done, the Americans pulled their troops out. 
as did the Soviets on the other side of the parallel. The Soviets left behind a North Korean army molded into a strong and cohesive force. And they had tanks. T-34s, the dependable workhorse of the Second World War. The US helped create the South Korean army, but decided to give it neither tanks nor artillery nor aircraft. This was to be a defensive army only. It was not one that impressed the British War Office. It has always been our view that irrespective of strengths, the North Korean forces would have little difficulty in dealing with the forces of South Korea should full-scale hostilities break out, in which case the Americans will have made a rather handsome contribution of equipment to the military strength of Asiatic communism. If the North invaded, judged one US military assessment, South Korea would be gobbled up to be added to the rest of Red Asia. In 1950s America, the Red Menace seemed all too real a threat along with the determination not to fall into the trap of appeasement, as Britain and France had before the Second World War. The United States of America would not retreat before Soviet Russia. It became Truman's policy that the Soviets should be challenged anywhere they attempted an assault on freedom, at least in the eyes of the Americans. But in reality, Washington wasn't prepared for any assault outside Europe. The US Army had been run down, its budget slashed from $82 billion to $13 billion. Manpower scaled down from $12 million in 1945 to $1.6 million. In Southeast Asia, General MacArthur's Far Eastern Command had only 45 days of ammunition. MacArthur's divisions were under strength, lacked reserves and just about everything else. They hadn't received any new kit since the end of the war. As the 1950s dawned, the US received a flood of reports suggesting invasion was imminent in Korea. Nonsense, declared MacArthur. He was wrong, and not for the last time. The North Koreans were coming. In New York, the United Nations demanded Northern forces withdraw. Two days after the invasion, the UN passed a resolution calling on member nations to provide whatever needs necessary for repelling the attack. Truman, determined to show he wasn't soft on communism, ordered a force assembled, and his staff hit the phones. Britain, France, Canada, Australia were among those asked to send what they could. It was an open, undisguised challenge to our internationally accepted position as the protector of South Korea. To back away from this challenge would be highly destructive to the power and prestige of the United States. In Britain, a country still of rations and ruins, Clement Attlee's newly elected government offered limited support, not least because it could barely afford to kit out an army for an overseas war. But there was, in Britain too, a fear of the reach of communism, fear of the enemy within. As Attlee himself put it, The fire that has been started in distant Korea may well burn down your own house. There was only one man considered to command the UN army and put out the Korean fire. General Douglas MacArthur. The hero of the war in the Pacific was 70, but still in active command of all US forces in the Far East. He was worshipped back home, a man who could do no wrong, even if he did have an ego the size of Kansas. I'm as corny as Kansas in August. I'm as normal as blueberry pie. No more a smart little girl with no heart I have found me a wonderful guy 
Yes, this is MacArthur. Son, do you have any goddamned idea what time it is? What? God in heaven. Get my car. MacArthur was based in Tokyo, where he received the call telling him of the invasion. Wearing dressing gown and slippers, he paced his bedroom and cast his mind back to the Philippines in 1941. An uncanny feeling of nightmare. It was the same fell no to the war cry that was again ringing in my ears. It couldn't be, I told myself. Not again. I must still be asleep and dreaming again. MacArthur believed this was the beginning of the battlefield confrontation he'd been waiting for, between land of the free and the tyranny of communism. This was his destiny. He'd do whatever it took to crush communism, and as commander-in-chief, use any weapon he saw fit. It was already a very different outlook to Truman in far-off Washington. MacArthur's staff and a huge swathe of the US public regarded him as their greatest commander of World War II, as did MacArthur himself. He'd come through the war untouched by his mistakes, garlanded by his successes. His HQ in Tokyo was like a royal court, MacArthur's court. He was the monarch, used to ruling how he and he alone saw fit. On 29th of June, four days after the invasion, MacArthur flew to Korea to take a look for himself. Across his staff, there was a view this would take no more than a few weeks, at a push months to sort. All those officers, those generals, they really thought that they were going to go over there and stop the gooks. <laughs> Just the same as in Vietnam. Just who the gooks were? They didn't know and didn't want to know. Within a week, the South Korean army was estimated to have lost half its strength, thousands of soldiers simply abandoning the fight and slipping back to their homes. MacArthur cabled Washington. Our best estimate is that complete collapse is imminent. In Seoul, the US evacuated the embassy. The ambassador's secretary got onto the plane with a dog under one arm, bottle of bourbon under the other. Not everyone got out. One group of Americans had gone to Quezon for a wedding. They were to be held prisoner in North Korea for three years. A mining advisor overslept. When he awoke, the US aeroplane had gone. He was never heard of again. Out in the country, thousands of refugees took to the roads, growing to become millions. I first heard the news on the radio. At the time, most people had very little food or money, but we knew we had to leave before the North Koreans arrived in Seoul. Together with my sister and her family, we crossed the Han River on a boat. My husband carried a bag of rice. My sister was not a very healthy person, and we had several small children. So we could only work about 10 miles a day. We worked for about 15 days. We saw Many dead people on the way. Blown bridges blocked their way. Death and destruction was everywhere. The suffering immense. It was the beginning of three years 
when their country was torn to pieces from north to south, east to west. Once North Korean forces took Seoul, they halted to allow supply lines to catch up and to gather themselves for a decisive thrust south. This breathing space allowed the US to hurry in its first troops, an understrength and underprepared infantry division, General William Dean's ill-fated 24th. The division was short of ammunition and equipment, and many of its men had barely been trained for combat. Its officers had no current maps of Korea. I'm sorry, I just don't have much information to give you, Brad. Do you know what we might be coming up against, General? Well, they'll be Reds, I can tell you that. They have tanks, that we're sure of, and they're coming down the road at speed. You must stop them, Colonel. But, General, we're short of anti-tank weapons. That's we're short enough, of... Colonel. Get your men up that road and hold it. Stop the Reds, do you understand? Yes, sir. Lieutenant Smith, Lieutenant Colonel Brad Smith dug his men in on the road between Suwon and Osan and waited. Shut up, shut up. Soon they heard the telltale sound of tanks. Their only anti-tank weapon was the handheld 2.36-inch bazooka, which had already proved inadequate in World War II. Sure enough, bazooka shells bounced off the T-34s. The Americans could do nothing to stop the North Korean advance. In two and a half hours, more than 30 tanks drove through US lines. They were followed by infantry, and the Americans began their first combat with communist soldiers. It didn't last long. Demoralized, tired, confused, and isolated, the GIs fell back hurrying off the heights and fleeing through stinking paddy fields fertilized with human manure. It became a desperate flight, as remembered by Lieutenant Day. It was every man for himself. When we moved out, we began taking more and more casualties. Guys fell around me. Mortar rounds hit here and there. One of my young guys got hit in the middle. My platoon sergeant ran over to him. I followed. No way he's gonna live, Lieutenant. Oh, Jesus. The guy was moaning and groaning. There wasn't much I could do but pat him on the head and say, hang in there. Another of the platoon sergeants got it in the throat. He began spitting blood. For the rest of the day, he held his throat together with his hands. He survived. Another officer used a map of Korea torn from a children's book to help get his men back. The 24th fled. It had been a nightmare beginning for the Americans. The communist tactic was to mount a frontal assault accompanied by flank attacks with the aim of getting behind the enemy, establishing roadblocks and cutting off escape routes. In five days, North Korean forces executed two successful envelopments of US troops at the Kum River and Taizhong. Facing a US army wedded to road movement, it was highly effective and aided by panic through American ranks. General Dean sacked one battalion commander on the spot after his unit retreated without firing a shot. His replacement was dead within two days. The Americans joined the retreat, trudging wearily along roads already clogged with refugees and shelled by the North Koreans. It was a shambles. 
The men of the 24th felt they'd been abandoned to their grim fate. We knew we weren't doing very well, but we kept saying to ourselves, well, here we are, and we've been here a month, and, and where the hell is the rest of the United States Army? They were on the way. On 13th of July, General Walton Bulldog Walker, a tough Texan who'd served under Patton, arrived to set up 8th Army HQ. Reinforcements were rushed forward, but still they couldn't stop the North Koreans. In Taijan, General Dean led the defense in person. He hunted one T-34 for an hour before destroying it. Later, he was knocked out and wounded. When he came round, his division was gone. Dean tried to hide in the mountains, but was betrayed and taken prisoner. After the war, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. America was desperate to find heroes amid the mess, but he was heavily criticized by some of his staff for the chaos that gripped the 24th. Lieutenant Colonel George Masters' words were scathing. He still did not know what war was. Fundamentally, he was a silly man. Two more divisions and a reinforced South Korean army now faced the Northern forces. But still, they came on. And still, too many Americans turned and ran. Roadblocks were established behind US units to sweep up deserters. The constant fear of being outflanked led to bug-out fever. US units would retreat as soon as their flank was threatened. The US accused the North of herding refugees across minefields, followed by tanks and infantry. Some disguised themselves as refugees and slipped through US lines to attack from the rear. Helpless US prisoners had hands tied behind backs and were shot. General Stratemeyer, the Air Force commander, made a note in his diary. Tuesday, 11 July, 1950. First press release on inhumane treatment of POWs. Bodies of seven American soldiers, hands tied behind them, were found by the roadside in territory recaptured from the North Koreans Monday. Each had been killed by a bullet in the face. General Walker was getting desperate. On 29th of July, he issued what became known as his Stand or Die order to the 8th Army. Walker emphasized retreating must stop, wrote Brigadier John Brown, the US Chief of Military History. The 8th Army had been trading space for time and was running out of space. The Americans were in danger of being run out of Korea. Walker settled on the Naktong River, deep in the southeast, to make his stand. There will be no more retreating, withdrawal, readjustment of lines, or whatever you call it. There are no lines behind which we can retreat. This is not going to be a Dunkirk or a Baton. A retreat to Busan will result in one of the greatest butcheries in history. We must fight to the end. We must fight as a team. If some of us die, we will die fighting together. As Bulldog Walker tried to set up a defensive perimeter, one North Korean division outflanked his forces. If they broke through to Busan, the key port on the south coast and the UN's main supply line, the war was lost. A week of frantic running battles followed before the Busan perimeter was secured. At last, the northern attack was halted. The north had run out of steam. Its supply lines were overstretched and amid much headlong retreat, some South Korean units had put up stiff resistance. As personified by the leadership of Bak Son-yeol, who was to become the outstanding South Korean commander of the war. 
the U.S. troops will withdraw, then the Republic of Korea will be over. I'll be at the forefront as your commander. If I retreat in here, shoot me first. Between 25th of June and the start of August, the North suffered 58,000 casualties. Walker's plan was to hold the perimeter at all costs while building up UN forces through Pusan's well-protected docks. Back home, Truman hurried to rebuild the US Army. Congress pumped funds to the military, reservists were recalled, and new recruits rushed through training. But it would take time. In the meantime, in Japan and Pusan, it would have to become a make-do-and-mend war. Everything seemed in turmoil. There were too many people with a wild stare in their eyes. The whole story of the army at this period is a very unsavory one. So began the Battle of the Pusan Perimeter. In the far southeast corner of Korea, the UN occupied a rectangle 100 miles north to south, 50 miles east to west. Much of the north-south line followed the Naktong River, which in the south was up to half a mile wide, but further north was fordable. It was overlooked on both banks by heights where each side dug in. The northern boundary was an irregular line running through mountains from Waiguan to Yongdok. Three US divisions and five from South Korea manned the line, while behind them, the US poured in reinforcements. The US suffered from poor intelligence throughout the war and thought northern forces still outnumbered them. In fact, the UN now had around 92,000 men to the North's 70,000. The North Korean command knew what was happening. They had to return to the offensive before the UN grew any stronger. In August, they attacked simultaneously on four fronts to try and negate General Walker's tactic of keeping his best men in reserve behind thinner front lines. His idea was to rush strong reinforcements to anywhere under serious attack. Walker also decided he too should go on the attack. On the 7th of August, Task Force Keane moved forward in the Chinjumasan Corridor. It was the first US counter of the war. Keane's men ran straight into the North Korean 6th Division, mounting an assault of its own. After a week of heavy fighting, both sides broke off with no territory taken. Nevertheless, US military historians regard it as a glass-half-full moment. Brigadier Brown wrote, Even so, the 8th Army had launched its first offensive in Korea and successfully halted the assault of an enemy division. In the south, Around the Naktong Bulge, a combined US Army and Marine force held firm. But in the northeast, North Korean forces snaked through mountains Walker considered impenetrable and threatened key airfields at Pohangdong and Yonil. God damn it! If the airfields fall, the way to Pusan's wide open. The Reds will be there before we can. Hell, it's Hail Mary time. Get every man you can and get them to Pohangdong and Yonil. Those Reds must be stopped at all costs. Do I make myself clear? Stop them or we are finished in Korea. Finished. Walker rushed reinforcements in, and with the North Koreans struggling to get supplies through the mountains, they were forced back. Still, the attacks came. In the second week of August, the communist forces attacked down the Naktong Valley towards Taigu. 
the city came within reach of northern artillery, forcing President Rhee's government to flee to Busan. But once more, Walker's men clung on. Bit by bit, the front materialised. The tanks squatted on the flats of the riverbeds. The road grew dense with traffic. And soon were the groups of men like picnickers crouching on the verge with, with automatic guns, huddling in the dust of the passing wheels among a litter of ration cans. The north short of men and supplies, had reached their limit. One of the least professional, least motivated armies America had ever put in the field, to use the words of military historian Max Hastings, had hung on. Just. Behind the weary, hard-pressed men at the front, the build-up gathered pace. In the air, the US had supremacy. By late August, they'd shipped 500 tanks, Pershings, Shermans and the new M46 patterns to Pusan. By early September, the UN force was 180,000 strong, around half South Korean. As reinforcements trod down the gangways from US ships in Pusan Harbour, they were greeted with a grim sight. Up the neighbouring gangplank, a never-ending line of wounded men were carried in bloodied stretchers. Everything I had read about Bataan I felt in the first few hours after landing in Pusan. People were just completely demoralised. We were told right off that the front had collapsed. As we were taken forward, we could see GIs on the flat cars, without weapons, going the other way. Stragglers getting out. The city stank. Debris piled everywhere, it was a mess. One US officer recalled arriving in Pusan expecting three months training before they went into line because his men were in no way ready for action. They were told to unpack weapons from crates on the quayside and trucked straight to the front. August and the first half of September were dark days. One US soldier watched the Marine Brigade assault No Name Hill. They went up in columns of companies. They came back on stretchers and columns of platoons. It was a magnificent thing, but of another era. Among the troops arriving were the first from Britain, the 27th Brigade in the form of a battalion of the Middlesex Regiment, followed by another from the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. The Americans were becoming frustrated with British reluctance to commit on the ground. Much like the Americans, the British Army had been reduced and poorly cared for. To the dismay of many, reservists were hurriedly recalled, including hundreds of former prisoners of war who'd been released in 1945, after years in German or Japanese prison camps. The general feeling was that we shouldn't be going, that it was nothing to do with us. There was an undercurrent that the Yanks had got themselves in a mess again, and we were being sent to bail them out. This viewpoint conveniently ignored the billions of dollars the Marshall Plan had recently poured into Britain and Europe. The 27th, when it arrived in Pusan, was known, by its own men, as the Woolworth Brigade, because it was so poorly equipped. It had been shipped in a hurry from Hong Kong. The men had no sleeping bags, and what limited winter clothing they possessed was looted from the docks in Pusan. The Middlesex were sent into the line west of Taigu. They were stretched so thinly that patrols would scuttle out to light fires at dawn to try and convince the North Koreans there were more of them than in actuality. Life on the perimeter front was grim for one and all. British, Americans, 
South and North Koreans. Lieutenant Walt Mayo was an artillery veteran of the Battle of the Bulge. <sighs> Things were so disorganized and depressing. We were rationed to 25 rounds a day and one was constantly fighting to get extra rounds. There were days when one lay for hours under incoming mortar fire but could get no rounds at all to fire back. You fought for a hilltop. You lost it. You got it back. There was none of that excitement of, of being on the move. Men were kept going by just a crude feeling of to hell with it. Those bastards aren't going to beat us. Conditions worsened as winter approached and morale plummeted with it. A soldier being injured in the line was an excuse for his comrades to take him back to the relative safety of the aid station. Anything to avoid being at the front come nightfall. Night was when the enemy were most likely to attack. Man after man of all ranks wrote of how much they hated and feared the night, and the sight of another grey dawn brought such relief. Even when wounded, the soldiers' ordeals were not over. The military hospitals in Japan were so short of supplies, there was not enough plaster cast to case broken limbs. Many US units had a chronic lack of training. Colonel Iron Mike Michaelis, a decorated airborne veteran of D-Day in Arnhem, was drafted in to lead a battalion when the previous commander was sacked on the spot. These kids of mine have all the guts in the world, and I can count on them to fight. But when they started out, they couldn't shoot. They didn't know their weapons. They'd been nursed and coddled. The US Army is so damn road-bound, the soldiers have almost lost the use of their legs. But good leadership could have a dramatic effect. Michaelis' battalion, the Wolfhounds, became one of the key units General Walker held back to rush into the line in an emergency. Unknown to Walker, the North Koreans were, if anything, in an even worse state. With a strong defensive line in front of them, their tactics of advance and outflank, so successful on the drive south, no longer worked. They refreshed their divisions, but by September, one-third of their 98,000 men were conscripted South Koreans who'd no desire to fight. They were short of weapons and short of rations often only having enough for one small meal a day. In Japan, the hardline US Air Force commander, General Stratemeyer, recorded his judgment in his diary. It is my opinion that the American ground forces are not taking the initiative in fighting. It is further my opinion that they are not aggressive unless they have total, all-out air support. Yet the North Koreans, without any air support, and in spite of tremendous casualties they are receiving from our air, they are aggressive at all times. When one considers the tremendous havoc and casualties that we have inflicted on personnel, armor, and on trucks, and they still keep coming, one cannot but admire them as an enemy. But with UN air supremacy and front lines close enough to the coast to allow US and British warships heavy guns to play a part, North Korea could not make a significant breakthrough. By mid-September, after what US military historian Brigadier John Brown called the bitter weeks of retreat and death, the US had suffered over 4,500 battle deaths. Things were even worse for the people of South Korea. Thousands roamed the country seeking any food or shelter they could. Much of the population lived on the brink of starvation. 
In areas occupied by the communists, the regime was harsh. In Seoul, policemen or anyone linked or denounced as part of the re-regime were executed. Huge posters of Kim Il-sung and Stalin were hung around the city. The North Koreans arrived and our lives were changed forever. At first, the North Koreans made communism sound so wonderful, and many thought it must be like heaven. Then, they arrested anyone they suspected of supporting South Korea. My husband hid in the basement of his older brother's house. It was difficult to know who to trust. But with the Pusan perimeter secure and men and supplies pouring in, the war in Korea was about to take a dramatic change of course. General MacArthur had an ace up his sleeve. And being MacArthur, it was an ace he was certain would give him a winning hand. Next, on wars that shaped the world. In critical condition from pain and loss of blood, and unable to grasp the hand grenade firmly enough to hurl it, he chose to sacrifice himself rather than endanger the lives of his men. And with a sweeping motion of his wounded right arm, cradled the grenade under him and absorbed the full impact of the explosion. Wars That Shaped the World was a Goal Hanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by Robin Scott Elliott. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pastor. Holy Smokes.